that believers, where is the hope? And here's the good news. Point us to our hope. First and foremost, in the first people one so far, we've seen that our identity in Christ Jesus must reign supreme. And so we see under the foreknowledge of God, he's able to do all kinds of things in our life. The very first thing the first century Christians need to believe, and the same thing that we need to believe, is who we are in Christ Jesus. That we are steadfastly, we are found in Christ, in Christ alone. But then, he shifts, and he says, so how are you going to live? What is the demonstration of your life going to actually look like? And so, yes, you are elect. Yes, you are chosen. Yes, you are firmly a son or a daughter who's been adopted in Christ Jesus, but you're also an exile. You actually live in a place called Bithynia or Cappadocia. These are these places of residence. So how do you live now here in this environment? And we know that the environment was not easy on we know that just because they're Christians, just because they're living out their Christian faith, that trials have come into their lives. There's criticisms that have come to them. And starting last week, Peter gives us some commands, some things that we are to do and how we are to live out the life of faith, how we are actually to look like more like a Christian than the world. And so if you remember last week's command was simply what? To be this idea that we are to be holy. Well, this week we're going to find two more commands. Two more commands. One is just to love one another. And the other, the third one is to crave spiritual milk. Peter is actually giving you a game plan. He's giving you a purpose because I don't know about you, but I look around my life and I look around where, where I am and all of the darkness or all of the frustrations or all of the discomfort. And I need a game plan. I need a roadmap, and here in these simple commands, Peter tells us, be holy, love one another, to crave spiritual milk. This is how we are to do that. And what happens when we do these things? We actually, we create a spiritual family, right? We become something other than just your familial relationship. Something spiritual happens with us. We become brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. We have a father and we are his children. And something begins to form. Little by little, we do that. Daniel McIntosh, training our community group leaders, he, he sent out this article. It's called The Nuclear Family's Mistake. It's in the Atlantic. It's based by Devin Brooks. And how Devin Brooks opens this article is quite amazing. He starts with this idea of a first, uh, a first generation uh, immigrant family who comes to America. And so granddad and, and dad are just trying to make a living. And there's this wonderful imagery throughout uh, the movie Avalon is, is where the premise of his, his argument. But in this movie, this, this, this family, this first generation family, the image is of a table. And so the, the image as the movie unfolds is how the grandparents come and they gather and grandma cooks and, da and granddad tells stories. And it's just a wonderful just picture of what family should look like. And so they gather. And then the first generation, they have kids. And the kids are welcome to the table. And then the kids have kids. And the grandkids are welcome to the table. And it's just a wonderful story. Well, the story of Avalon is, is, is not a good story. It's actually a tragedy. Because where it starts to bend is when this breakdown of the family starts to happen.
happen, something happens actually to the table. Generations, entire generations start to disappear from the family table. And so at the end of the movie, what you are left with are grandchildren who now have children. Not sitting around the table, but actually having TV trays on their laps as they watch the TV as they eat. And so the idea is that, that something has been replaced. Instead of coming around the table to hear the stories of old, we sit here with a wheel on our lap, having these other stories being told to us. And so what kind of stories do the spiritual people tell? Where do we draw the line to say something's wrong or something is amiss? Where do we stand up for the family, the spiritual family, and this idea that this is how we behave, or this is how we do these things. Because we really are a spiritual family, and we need to understand exactly what it is to be us. And Peter tells us, not only as an individual are you to look at your holiness and take that really strongly, but this second command, this idea that we are to love one another, the second command in First Peter is he's wrapping his arms around the people of God and he's saying, you are something special. And you need to take this thing that God is creating very, very special, or uh, serious. So tonight we're having family meeting. We've already mentioned it. We want you to be in attendance because we are a family. We're a family of faith, a body of believers who lives and breathes and moves in a certain way, and we believe that God is the one who forms us. And so we are a spiritual family. The first thing we see in First Peter is this idea, this command, is that uh, we are a family and we just literally love others. And so you and I need to understand exactly what loving is. The mark of the Christian life, more than anything else, is this idea of love. That is the marker of the Christian life, plain and simple. There are many ways to understand what church is, and the complexity, or the purpose, or why we exist as Christians, but as at its core, the Christian faith is none other than for us to love to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as we love ourselves. This is where our command is. Peter is not saying anything new. He's only repeating what we all need to hear, what we often forget, is that we forget to love one another. Your church experience can go two ways. The first direction is that maybe you don't have a great family. Maybe your family tree just looks like it's spindles and gnarly and none of it really makes sense. And so you may have found a home inside the church. You may have found acceptance in the church. You may have found great forgiveness and love. This new definition of what even community can even look like. Because what everything that you were looking at or walking toward was garbage, but what you found here at the local church level was beautiful and wonderful and good. That could be your story. The other part of the story is that you may look to the local church and be highly critical. You may be one of those who love Jesus but hate the church. You may have seen local church at the local church level, or guys like me who's wearing microphones or whatever have actually hurt you or damaged you, and so therefore there's skepticism in your heart. 
And so the local church isn't that beautiful or that good, and yet you still find you find yourself here today. No matter where you are, it's complete love and beauty or skepticism because of work, the pain, the command doesn't bend to our emotions or even our experience. Amen? It doesn't bend there. The command remains the same. It's we must love one another. We must love the fellowship of Christ Jesus. So here's the kind of money for The first mark of true holiness, which is the command that we learned about last week, the very first mark of what holiness is, right, the practical application of how we are to be set apart requires, right? This is not a suggestion. It requires the love of fellow Christians. This is who we are. Peter is wonderful in his explanation because he gives us some imagery. He gives us some, some real-time examples that you and I can hold on to. It's hard for us to remember phrases like this, but, but images are easy to remember. So he starts with a C. So how exactly do we love? Well, let's go back to fifth grade science class and understand that it starts with a C. What are these things? What, are, what is the power within these little things called seeds? Seeds possess within themselves the power to bring forth life. Right there, in and of itself, it's nothing, right? You put it on a wall and it becomes nothing, right? You use it as a demonstration. It's nothing, it's just it's a thing. But inside of all of these trees, in all these seeds, possess within themselves the power to bring forth something else. My backyard is a huge banquet tree. And throughout the year, you see the, you know, the helicopters, right? Our whole yard will be full of these little maple helicopters that we have there. Well, soon, very soon, what's going to spring up? You're going to see little saplings. And those little saplings will one day become big trees. And big trees produce more seeds. And more seeds produce more helicopters, or helicopters and seeds. Become more saplings, and just the cycle goes over and over. So now, where did all of this life come from? How did it even begin? Where did the sapling even start? Well, inside of the seed possesses the power of life. The oldest tree in America is called a bristlecone pine. It's found in California. Some of the scientists say it's 5,000 years old. But it was once a seed. And so there, the sap. And there, the trunk, and there the bark, and there the limbs, and the branches, and the fruit, and all the things were found inside this little bitty thing called a seed. Seeds possess the power to bring forth life. And all of these properties that are real in existence were as real at the very, very and from the very beginning, when it looked like this, all of the power, all the essence, was right there. Throughout our passage, right, the all of chapter 1, 1 Peter gives you this phrase that you must be born again. What Peter is telling you is that you need to remember your seedling state. You need to understand where it began. So sure, it's, it's, it's forming. Yes, it's going out into public and it's, and it's becoming and developing. But you cannot 
forget where you started. You cannot forget the fact that you too were a seed and you too, by God's grace, were born again. You had a spiritual birth. Remember Nicodemus in the dead of night in John 3. And Jesus walks to him, toward him, and he says, you must be what? Born again. And he scoffs. He says, how in the world is that even possible? First Peter to the brothers and sisters of Cappadocia and Bithynia and Asia Minor going back to the beginning, for you to be able to love, you must remember where we began. Because way back then, there at the very, very beginning, there was embedded in your soul the ability to love one another. Because you are now a spiritual person. You now have a spiritual DNA. You now have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, who is reigning and ruling and doing wonderful things. What is happening out there, when, when, when the love comes bursting forth out of your life, just know that it's, yes, it's true in real time, but at the very beginning, embedded in the Holy Spirit who seals you at the moment of salvation was this the ability to obey the command to love one your identity and your clearest motivation, motivation to love came at salvation and is moving its way through your life here. But it's not easy, is it? When's the last time it was hard for you to love a brother or a sister in Christ Jesus? It's not easy. It wasn't easy in the first century either. Don't forget you had, you had Jews and Gentiles, you had people in different socioeconomic status, you had people who believed different things or had different ideals, and some people prioritized this and that, and it was just a mess back then as it was today. But the command is still true for us to love one another. Even though it may not be easy, the command still needs to be obeyed. Remember, and this idea Bonhoeffer gives us this, this imagery of your brothers and sisters to your left and your right. Even now, if you look left or right, and if these are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, Bonhoeffer would say, if you look left or right, you can name them. You can give them names and applications and all types of things. But in between you and that brother or sister stands Jesus. Because this relationship is not a physical one. It's a spiritual one. And the only reason you have anything in common is because you were both born again and you're welcomed into a spiritual family. He also says something that family loves and he gives us some descriptors. And he says very simply, you need to sincerely and earnestly love the brothers and sisters. And as you love, this is the type of quality that it is to happen. So this idea of sincerity is another word for pure, which is all throughout context. This idea of genuine, remember genuine and genuine faith, when we talk about gold and the purification of our faith, that also just means real. Like it's sincere. Like you authentically love your brother and sister because it's a spiritual relationship. And that's the only reason why. That's motivation enough. But there's also another word up there. Sincere, which is real and genuine and pure, but also this idea of earnest. These brothers and these sisters in Christ Jesus. As the phrase says, uh, you can pick your friends, uh, but not your family, 
right? And so, uh, picking your friends is the easy part, but you can't, you can't pick your family. Your family is, those are family. You can't do anything about it. So what Peter is telling us here is nothing like what the world, what, how the world thinks of, of friendship. Because when we like one another, right, like is different. Like is in the category of chemistry. And that's what friendship is. People who have similar preferences to you. You like similar, similar tastes or food or drinks or hobbies. And so all of these preferences are even personality types or how that person speaks about you or whether they are encouraging or not or whether they charge you and they challenge you or whatever. Whatever it is, friendship is on the kind of this spectrum of preferences or chemistry. That's not love. Like. And the command here is not for us to like love. Now, this is what you would know. This is how you know what love is, first John would say. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us so that you can do the same. Love is no more, no less than this idea of sacrifice. So you have to give up something in order to give something True biblical love is this exercise of sacrifice into other people's It's not even emotion. It's commitment on our part. It's to push through all of the like and into love. And we do this because of what we see in the character of who God is. Because God is what? God is love. When we know this word for love is this word for steadfast. And the steadfast is long-suffering. And long-suffering is another word for covenant. And covenant is another word, the Hebrew word for hesed, right? All of these things mean God will do what he says he will do. When you are unfaithful, he will be the faithful one because he will pour out love toward his children no matter what. And that's the beauty of the local church. And this is the beauty of what is happening even here in this room together. Because there is a diversity among us. We all don't all look the same. We don't come from similar places. We don't even have some of the same belief systems. We certainly don't have the same jobs or even the same worldview. But the beauty of loving one another is that you love them where they're at. And so this word earnest. Is actually another word for strength or another word for stretch. Your brother or your sister in Christ Jesus should stretch you. It should strain you, as the scripture would say, as iron sharpens iron. Or Hebrews would tell us, as loving and they spur one another toward love and good deeds. And so we try to gravitate toward what the world calls likeness and, and chemistry. But the biblical mandate is to sacrifice and to love unconditionally the brothers and sisters that cross our path. But we so easily give up on one another and we try to find somebody we like or someone we, do, we agree with. Let's not do that, brothers and sisters. Take, for instance, your community Everybody say, woo woo, for our community group leaders in the room. Woo woo, right? And so here are these people, these, these wonderful men and women 
who have agreed for whatever reason to run a little family group, right? And so we need to pray for our community group leaders. Why is that? Because they didn't pick you. They, these community group leaders, had to accept whoever comes through that door. And that's you, right? And so when you come racing through the door, they didn't do anything about it. They may like you, they may not like you, they may whatever, but they just, they have to welcome you no matter what. And so in this acceptance, they just open the door and they make a commitment to you wherever you are. And these community leaders have chosen to love you no matter what. These people are not paid to love you. They're just as busy as you are, and yet they lead and they care for the people in their group, whether they have chemistry with them or not. This is love. This is love. A love that is stretched. A love that can be strained. Because the church is not built on life. It's built on love. Country club, or the Yahtzee club, or the chess club, or the whatever baking bread on Tuesday nights club. All of those people are lined by preferences. The church is not. Their preference is Jesus Christ. So the second thing that we need to learn is this idea of, of nourishment. That the family is actually nourished in a way that's amazing. Look at this poem that we say week in and week out. All flesh is like grass. I actually move up. Through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flowers of the grass of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that, that was preached to you. And so where is the nourishment coming from? This idea, just in this poetry, is this idea that the word endures, the word abounds, the word abides. And so all of our nourishment comes from what the good news of Jesus Christ that is found in the word gives to us. How are we holy and how do we love one another? Through our spiritual nourishment that is found in the word that proclaims the good news that Jesus Christ has ransomed us. This is our nourishment. And so here in our, in the poetry, poetry is all about images, it's all about pictures, and here's the picture that they're trying to say. That you and I face a choice. A choice of loyalties and a choice of quality. So they here in this poem, we're facing a choice of loyalty, or better yet, a choice of quality. Which one will you choose? Will you commit your life to your flesh, which is, or this world, which is a lot like the grass of the field that is glorious and beautiful and great, and yet that flower will fall, and that grass will with her? Or will you be loyal to or have the quality of another worldview? Look at the conjunction of 25. But there's a conjunction, there's a choice here that you and I can abide by the word of God that remains forever. 
effort versus season. Enduring. That's better than beauty. A burst of color versus long suffering. We get you. Over and over and over throughout the Word of God, you will see the faithlessness of God's people coming together. But the abiding, enduring, wonderful Word of God will talk about this covenantal one who will be steadfast forever and ever. Life, the way, the reason you were here, sitting in that seat, life, right, was conceived, you, because you were conceived by a mere mortal. And mere mortals only give perishable seeds that will perish. See what I'm saying? Say that without saying it. And even a flower, with all its brilliance, will eventually perish. And yet what Christ gives is not a perishable seed, but what he gives to us transcends all of the glory of human achievement. I think it's amazing that you and I don't know much about Cappadocia, Bithynia, Pontius, uh, Galatia or Asia. We don't know much about these places. But we know something about Rome and the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire was robust and huge and amazing. And they are the very ones, the tyrants that they were, that were coming toward the local church and persecuting the local church. That's what Rome was doing to these people. They were persecuting them and will ultimately kill them, light them on fire, and, and make sure the entire city is ablaze with Christians. This is what Rome will do to people like us. But here we are a couple of thousand years later, and what do you know of Rome? They've lost their world superpower status, haven't they? They've been reduced to a country, a good one, right? But they're known more for their tourism than being an empire. Even now, the city, which is at the center of Rome, lies not just this epicenter of persecution, but you can actually find the Vatican there. For the first thousand years of Christendom, the, you know, Rome, or the, uh, now the Catholic Church, was, was going to reign and rule. And so the things of Rome and the things of the Roman Empire have faded. As amazing as it was, it now no longer is. And so which one are we going to pick? Which quality or loyalty are you going to give yourselves to? What value or what nourishment or what are the things that you're going to give your life to? In two short weeks, give has gone from looking like a beautiful city full of life and vitality and history and culture to this. One tyrant and his selfish ambition has literally turned buildings to rubble. It can happen just like that. And so what Peter is trying to give you and I is this idea that you have a choice. Which worldview are you going to live by? And he does this by quoting all flesh like grass. And we know that if you look through, uh, look through uh, the scriptures and cross-reference it, it's found in Isaiah 40. The things you need to know about Isaiah 40 is it's to a people who are in exile. It's to a people who have lost all hope. And 
the very first words of Isaiah 40 is, Comfort, comfort my people. You see, what we need today is what they needed 2,000 years ago, which they needed 600 years before Peter. Comfort, comfort my people. We need to know that the comforts that we have, the identity that we have, comes from what he is able to do. And so, yes, you may be in exile. Yes, you may be discouraged. Maybe you wonder, want, want to know exactly where God is. And what Peter is saying is just flip a couple of pages to Isaiah 40 and hear these words to us this morning. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert the pathway of the Lord. For every valley will be made high, and every mountain will be brought low, and every rough place will be made smooth. A voice says, cry, and he says, what shall I cry? And he says, all flesh is like grass, and all its beauty, like the flower of the field. And he quotes this passage that's found in First Peter. So go up to the high mountain, O people of God, O Zion and herald of good news. This is what is this abiding idea is the good news is here for us. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up and fear not, for behold the Lord. Behold, the Lord God is with you and has might. And he starts asking these questions. Who has measured the waters and the hallowed and who has marked off the heavens with a stone, with a human stone? Enclosed the dirt, the dust, and earth with a measure, and weighed the mountains on the scales. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows the Lord counsel? Who did he consult? Who did he say, hey, can you help me understand? You see, he is the one who taught us justice and taught us knowledge. Behold, the nations are like a drop. From a bucket, to whom then will you liken him? And so when we sing on a morning, that great are you, Lord, and when we hear of poetry in the New Testament that is hearkening back to an old day, we understand that God is great. And the reason that we love others is because deep down inside of us, he started something. So what do we do now? How do you and I rectify all of this? Well, it comes down to just what our appetite is. In our passage, it tells us that you and I need to become infants. We need to go back to the very beginning of our little childhood to understand our spiritual nature. And all of us, when we came crashing into this world, we all cried for our mom. Are we crying for a plug? If you're a mom in here, you remember what that sounds like. It's this whimper, this desperation, this idea that I don't care about your convenience. I just need to be fed. Give me what I want. Give me what I need. And in this desperation, we understand not that we're going to keep on moving. Uh, we're going to keep on moving. We're running out of time. We understand that there's a difference between what the world craves, which are these things, 
our spiritual We are like infants. And if we crave the things that the world craves over and above what the word tells us to crave, we will be malnourished. And so in the second image, one of a seed and one of a crying infant, we need to realize that the only way that our, our lives will be nourished, and the only way that we can love one another is to hold on to this idea of A nourishment that is not found in this world, but is only found in the God who gives you and me. To start, or to finish what we started, we are a spiritual family. And a spiritual family are to be set apart and to love one another and to crave the things that God has given to us that will nourish us. The Lord brings us very naturally into the Lord's table. Because our true nourishment, our true thing that will help sustain us and help us to survive, is the person who of Jesus Christ. What he has done on our behalf, this is our full and true nourishment. And so God's people have heard God's word for thousands of years and have come around the table the table of remembrance to get their true sustenance. And at Red Soul Church, week in and week out, we come to our table so that we can remind ourselves where our nourishment is found. It's not even found in the, the church gathering. It's found in the person and work of Jesus The scriptures tell us that the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he was giving us, or the, this, this this unbelievable trajectory of life. This is how it's going to happen. He comes to this very familiar table and he says, I know that some of you are going to betray me tonight. Some of you are going to run away from me like the plague. But I need you to know something about who I am. I'm starting something new tonight. And so that something new is going to be focused on and the crux and the hinge will be me alone. Be Jesus alone. And so the night that he was betrayed, that's how the scriptures start. He took a piece of bread. Now, this bread was, was, was unleavened bread. And he broke it and he distributed it to his new brothers and his new sisters. Now, what we know of the upper room is, is interesting. Because this was a family meal, right? Like tonight, it was a family meal. And usually you would go to your parents' house or your grandparents' house, and you would be around uncles and aunts. But tonight, this night, Jesus says, you are my new family. I'm starting something new. And what will start here will gather people like us forever around the table of Jesus. And so the night that he was betrayed, he took this piece of bread and broke it and gave it. And he says, this is my body. Given. Blessed, he says, take and eat as you remember. 